Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a pair of pharmacology and toxicology experts offer a warning about the dangers of the drug tyaneptine. People have been using this drug in the United States because it has effects very similar to opioids or narcotics or things like hydrocodone or oxycodone. A neurologist introduces us to the new autonomic neuropathy clinic and lab. For example, patients with neuropathy, patients with different types of muscle disease, either inherited or acquired, myasthenia gravis, muscular dystrophy, and autonomic dysfunction. And a psychiatrist discusses a new zero-suicide program in Syracuse. I think the mindset is that asking about suicide starts to become routine, uh, that you, it's done as part of general health screening. All that and a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk about neuromuscular disorders and the autonomic testing that's now available in Syracuse. Then we'll hear about a program designed to reduce the number of suicides in our community. But first, there are growing concerns about a drug that has the potential for abuse and addiction. A drug used in other countries to treat depression and also anxiety, asthma, and irritable bowel syndrome has the potential for abuse and addiction. Two toxicology experts from Upstate have researched this medication and are here with me in the studio to talk about it. They are Dr. Gina Marafa and Dr. Christine Stork from the Upstate New York Poison Center. Both are doctors of pharmacy. Christine Stork is the clinical director at the Poison Center and a professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine. And Gina Marafa is the assistant clinical director at the Poison Center, and she's an associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine. Welcome, and thank you both for being here. Appreciate it. Now, I know the Poison Center works closely with the emergency department. Can you tell us what types of calls you handle at the Poison Center? I'm sure. Dr. Stork? So the Upstate New York Poison Center handles callers um, f- from the public and from healthcare professionals in 54 counties of Upstate New York. So everything north of Westchester fits within the catchment area. And within that, we have over 100 hospitals who call the Poison Center routinely for advice or to report cases. Um, of those, about 40% of our call volume is from healthcare professionals at this point in time. And it's, uh, is it all like medication overdoses or what, what types of um, cases do you handle on a kind of a regular basis? So there's a variety of cases. Um, this, the types of things that we get called about include, it could be di- as diverse as, yes, medications, people unintentionally having side effects to medications, people attempting to harm themselves by taking large doses of their medications or someone else's medications, people exposed to gases in fires or in the workplace or even in their home. Um, there is quite a variety of what is considered a poisoning and the types of things that we would get involved in, in in, in the healthcare caller setting. And so you or one of your colleagues is always available to be a resource to, it sounds like, yeah. all of the state outside of New York City, right? Yeah. So um, the Poison Center, the people who pick up the phone, they're certified specialists in poison information at our center. They're nurses and pharmacists. And in the more difficult cases, there's a series of clinical and medical toxicologists who are available 24-7 to provide even more expert um, advice and help in taking care of the more difficult cases. Okay, interesting. Well, tell us about this drug that I alluded to, um, tianaptine, is that right, Dr. Marafa? Yeah, so tianeptine, or people say it in in different ways, um, is a drug that is available in other countries as a pharmaceutical or a um, more, considered more of a prescription drug in other countries. It's an unapproved drug in this country and is not available as a pharmaceutical in the United States. Um, But what we've seen is that people have been using this drug in the United States because it has effects very similar to opioids or narcotics or things like hydrocodone or oxycodone. So in the recent 
year or two, we've seen an increased number of people that are using tianeptine for the opioid or narcotic effects that it can cause. I'm going to go ahead and spell it just for listeners, T-I-A-N-E-P-T-I-N-E. Yes. So if it's, it's unapproved here, has it gone to the FDA and the FDA declined it, or has it just not gone to the FDA? I do not believe that it has ever gone through any studies in the United States, um, and, and I do not believe that it's ever gone to as far as to even reach the FDA for approval status. Again, it's been available in several countries in other parts of the world as a pharmaceutical, probably as more most commonly used for antidepressant effects, um, but for this, in this country, it is not um, it is not something that's undergoing any clinical trials, um, at least that I'm aware of at this point, and has not gone to the FDA at this point that I'm aware of. But in other countries, there are doctors, I assume, that are writing prescriptions for this, correct? And are giving it for legitimate reasons correct. to people, correct? So, how are people here able to get their hands on it? Do they? have to have a doctor in another country or how does that work? Well, largely with this product, at least what we've been seeing in the last year or two from calls to the poison center, um, is that a lot of people are trying to access this drug in alternative ways, such as the internet um, and non, you know, they're not going to a doctor in another country to get this medicine. They're getting it largely over the internet um, because, again, because of its potential to have those opioid or narcotic effects. So you can just order it and it'll come to your house in a package? Unfortunately, yes. Wow. All right. Um, How expensive is it? Is it hard? Is it uh, difficult to obtain because of money or? Well, I... I actually don't exactly know how much it costs, um, but it is, um, I don't think that it's that expensive, um, and it's not, from what we understand, um, it's not a very difficult item to obtain once, once someone's on the internet with the, with the correct resources. Now, you um, put together a, a paper a research that's published in a research journal about this. What, what did you look at? We did. So, um, the Upstate New York Poison Center, along with um, our colleagues down at the New York City Poison Center, um, Drs. Hoffman and Sue, as well as Dr. Stork, we looked at poison center data across New York State of exposure calls to tianeptine over the past several years. We initially looked at it from 2000 just to look to see an increase um, to see when we first identified cases. Um, and we pulled together our cases and then essentially provided what we're seeing at at the Poison Center. Again, this is probably a significant underrepresentation of the true number of cases or people that are using tianeptine um, in this country to for its opioid properties Um, but at least calls to the poison center and and what we found was that we've had nine cases of calls to the poison center secondary to tianeptine exposure and the combination of those cases have been people who have become sick from toxicity, from acute overdose, um, as well as withdrawal from this medication. So it also can cause withdrawal very similar to what we talk about with other narcotics or opioid withdrawal. Um, And so we put this together to look to see what presenting symptoms patients had, what what they required as far as in in medical treatment, um, and recently published this back in um, 2018. So very current. Um, and you made the point, it, it's probably an underrepresentation because you're only looking at the, the calls that came to the poison center. There could be a lot of other cases of overdose or misuse that you don't know about, right? Right, that's correct. Calls to poison centers are, again, they're voluntary calls. So it requires either a person in the public or a healthcare professional to pick up the call and call the poison center. Um, And with a lot of scenarios, we know that the number of calls to poison centers is significantly underestimated or underreported. Um, so what we, so again, we, we're using voluntary calls to the poison center to describe our data. Um, but with that, there's probably a lot of people that are using tianeptine that we don't know about. Um, and even probably from, even from healthcare professionals, this is a relatively new product and they may not they may not even know that it exists, and people may not even be reporting this if they're going to their doctor or their to the emergency department with symptoms. It may they, they may never say that they use tianeptine. 
How does it compare with other opioid prescriptions in terms of um, pain relief? Well, so so that's, I think, a little bit interesting. Um, as far as, I mean, we know that it has very similar properties and it works as an opioid just like other opioids. Um, I'm not aware of any studies comparing tyaneptine to other narcotics that we know of. Um, perhaps maybe there are some of those studies in other parts of the world. Um, but, you know, I think that we know that it causes the exact same effect so people can become very sleepy, people can become, um, have problems with their brain breathing or have respiratory depression. Um, so it's, they're very, very similar in that effect. Um, as far as how well it works for pain, I think that that's probably a subjective finding that I'm not sure that there's any data to compare the two. In terms of toxicity, is it just as dangerous as other opioids or more so? I would say just as dangerous. It all depends on the dose, but just as dangerous. And then um, I know that we have Narco Narcan or Naloxone in our mm -hmm. community. Does that drug, Narcan, reverse the effects of tianeptine? So that's a very interesting question, I think. Um, and we looked at that data to see if, um, if the patients that were called into the poison center, if they received Naloxone and if it had any benefit. Um, I think that there have been cases of people who have tyaneptine toxicity responding to naloxone and those that have not responded to naloxone also. And I think that's largely just because of the dose of naloxone that sometimes people require depending on their exposure. So um, if someone is not breathing and or having respiratory depression or difficulty breathing and they have signs consistent with narcotic overdose or opioid overdose, we would still suggest giving naloxone if someone has naloxone and doing all of the other things that we do for someone who looks like they're having symptoms of opioid poisoning. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Drs. Gina Marafa and Christine Stork from the Upstate New York Poison Center. Um, I, I wanted to see if we can talk about other products that are being used as opioid alternatives that people need to be concerned about. Um, what other legal drugs are being misused in our community? So Dr. another, Sir? yeah, so another um, drug that's kind of coming to the forefront and becoming more popular is this drug uh, Kratom, or Kratom, depending upon how you want to pronounce it. It's um, mostly available via the internet as well. And we're seeing more and more use of this product. It's not regulated in any way, sense, or form, so it's um, easily obtainable. Is it uh, a prescription drug in other countries as well? or I do not believe so. Oh, okay. So unregulated, it, illegal then? It's not illegal. Oh, it's not illegal. It's not illegal. I, I believe several years ago, uh, people uh, attempted to regulate this product. Um, and it was slated to be regulated, and there was a large public outcry for it not to be regulated, and it has since been not regulated. So what do people who are taking this drug, what are they hoping to achieve with it? Again, it has very similar properties. So it has opioid-like properties, so either to obtain opioid-like effects or narcotic effects or to stem withdrawal symptoms from other opioids. Okay, wow. Is it a pill uh, or a capsule or what tablet or something that you just take by mouth? Yeah, I think you can find it in a variety of forms, but yes. All right, now I know recently there had been an issue with um, the anti-diarrheal drug Imodium or Loperamide being misused. Is that still something that people are reaching for? It is. So loperamide abuse has been increasing um, over the past several years, um, and patients are using loperamide both as an opioid substitute or very similar to what Dr. Stork just referred to as treating their withdrawal symptoms from other opioids. Um, we've seen a significant increase in the number of loperamide abuse and misuse cases in this country um, over the past several years. Um, and it, in addition to the opioid effects of loperamide that people are abusing it for, it now is a, it's readily identified and causes severe cardiac 
toxicity or problems with people's um, heart rhythm and has even been implicated in several deaths in this country um, in the past several years. So yes, still an ongoing problem. Um, there's a lot of national initiative and um, advisory panels that are trying to increase education about loperamide abuse, um, as well as collaboration amongst many different, um, many different groups and industry to try to um, minimize the access of loperamide. So these are people that are reaching for these drugs they can get their hands on in a variety of ways, it sounds like, to take care of a problem, but they're adding all of this, these other potential problems or risks and that are dangerous, it sounds like. It, it so. sure is. And I think when it, loperamide was first talked about in, in the public, um, it was largely talked about, for, one, to be able to have to get high from it, but also to treat the withdrawal and the heart problems that it has since been identified um, now with people using significantly high doses was never was never appreciated or recognized before because at therapeutic doses, loperamide is very safe, it's very effective, and it doesn't cause heart problems. Um, so these new heart problems that we're seeing is only being recognized because of it being used in excessive doses. Oh. Now what about synthetic marijuana? Is that um, still a problem? We're still um, seeing a large amount of synthetic marijuana in our community. Our healthcare professionals have gotten much better at managing this problem and they've seen it so frequently that as the poison center, we have not been called quite as frequently as we were during the initiation of the large outbreak of synthetic um, marijuana products. That's due to education of the providers to recognize and yeah, I mean, there's been a large amount of education out there, you know, a lot large amount as well of be having seen many of these cases now over several years, this has been going on for at least two, three years now, that the healthcare professionals have kind of accustomed to treating patients who are coming in with a synthetic marijuana problems. It's still out there. People are still using synthetic, synthetic marijuana products. The demographics changed a little, that initially it was um, a... Um, a, a non-illegal substance that people would go out and use to um, kind of get get out of their drug screen issues. And now, um, because of the dangers identified and, and the education to the public, the demographic has switched a little bit to the more lower socioeconomic groups due to the low cost, I believe, affiliated with that. So that's yeah. changed to some extent, but it's still there. It's, it's still, still out an there. issue. So we have legalized marijuana with a prescription. There are certain prescribers in, in New York State that write prescriptions for people to take marijuana legally to treat medical issues. Is that going to change or have an impact on uh, synthetic marijuana and other you know, it's very products. hard to tell what exactly will occur in New York State, but we can look towards other states that they would have legalized medical marijuana, um, as well as fully legalized recreational, recreational. use of marijuana. Mm -hmm. And I believe the the biggest impact seen in those states has been with the edible products, and in particular in children and pediatric exposures to marijuana products. If you leave the edibles around and a, a child gets a hold of them. Yeah, you know, many times these things come as gummies or candy bars and other items that would be seen as desirable to a small child. So there has been a large uptick in um, legalized marijuana products that are edibles in that patient population. My guests have been Drs. Gina Marafa and Christine Stork from the Upstate New York Poison Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, a look at the autonomic testing now available in Syracuse. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today we're going to learn about a neuromuscular clinic. Here with me in the studio is Dr. Ahmed Eldokla. He's an associate professor of neurology and he specializes in neuromuscular disorders. Thank you for being here, Dr. Thank you. Dukla. So the Neuromuscular Clinic uh, is located at the Upstate Bone and Joint Center on Fly Road? Yes. Correct. Um, tell us what types of patients you see there. So uh, it's a state-of-art uh, neuromuscle center to take care of patients with various muscle and nerve disease. For example, patients with neuropathy, patients with different types of muscle disease, either inherited or acquired myasthenia gravis, muscular dystrophy, and autonomic dysfunction. So um, let me figure out the definitions for some of these things. Neuropathy, is that um, numbness in the nerves, or what is that? Right. Neuropathy is a, a disease that affects the nerves. So patients usually present with various complaints, including numbness, tingling, burning, stabbing pain, weakness. Okay. And so your um, task is to sort of figure out why? Yes, pretty much we try to figure out why the patient has neuropathy and what we can do to treat that right. using multiple modalities and multiple tests. Okay. You mentioned myasthenia gravis and muscular dystrophy um, and then autonomic disorders. What, it, what are those? Yeah. So myasthenia gravis, let us start with myasthenia. Myasthenia gravis is the uh, disease that affects the junction between the muscle and the nerve. And usually patients with myasthenia presented with fatigue, double vision, droopy eyelids, and when it gets really bad, they usually complain of difficulty swallowing and weakness. Uh, autonomic nervous system is a system that controls the vital functions of different organs of the body. It controls the blood pressure, heart rate, sweating, and pain. Uh, there is different diseases can affect the autonomic nervous system. Uh, let me mention some examples of the most common diseases. Uh, in patients with diabetes, the study have shown that uh, they have a high prevalence of disease affecting the nerves of the autonomic nervous system or the nerves of the autonomic nervous system going to the heart in a disease called uh, cardiovascular autonomic neuropathy. Cardiovascular autonomic neuropathy? Yep. Okay. So pretty much it's a disease affecting the autonomic nervous to the heart. It has been associated with increased mortality. And recently, American Diabetic Associations recommend autonomic testing for diabetic patients, either type 1 or type 2. Another example of autonomic disease is small fiber neuropathy. It's a difficult to diagnose disease. Patients usually presented with pain, numbness, burning, and tingling. Routine studies, including EMG and nerve conduction study, are normal but the autonomic testing usually is abnormal, especially a test called QSART. So the autonomic nervous system, is that part of our general nervous system of the body, or is it separate from it? It is. It is actually part of the general nervous system of the body, but it works in the background to control the different systems, including the large nerves, or what we call it, large fibers, nerves. And the things that you mentioned seem vital, the blood pressure, heart rate, pain control, but you mentioned sweating, and that seems interesting to me. Why would it, what does it have to do with sweating? Right. When it's really hot, sweating is one way for the body to get rid of the heat. The, the autonomic nervous system is the one that plays in the background to control that. And there is a disorder of a sweating or diseases that can affect the sweating, especially in patients who are un unable to sweat normally, and they may present with heat exhaustion or heat stroke. Oh, okay. Yeah. I see. All right. So it sounds like you've got a wide variety of patients that have a, a variety of symptoms, some with diseases that they were born with and some that develop later. Um, Anyway, uh, so what, 
what do you do for them at the clinic when they come there? Is it mostly for diagnosis so that you kind of put together the symptoms and give them a name of what's going on? It's both for diagnosis and treatment. So the, 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 the Neuro Muscle Center is a provide comprehensive care for patients with uh, muscle and nerve disease. Usually we start with seeing the patient in the clinic, and after that we do multiple investigations, if needed, on site. Let me give you some examples. So we have on-site EMG and nerve conduction study lab. Imaging and nerve conduction? EMG, called EMG. EMG, okay. What is that? It's like... uh, Testing for the muscle. You put a needle in the muscle and listen to the muscle sound. You don't inject the patient with anything. You just listen to the muscle sound. And really, it's gold standard test to diagnose any muscle or nerve disease. I didn't know muscles made sounds. <laughs> what do they sound like? So uh, our body, including muscles, is work with electricity. So the brain usually sends signals to the muscle to work, to move. And the way the brain sends the signals is through the nerves. And through the chemical channels that at the end, it generate electricity in the muscles. And we record this electricity. It has, the normal muscles has specific sound and specific waveform. In patients with muscle disease or nerve disease, the sound and the waveform will sound and look different. Wow, interesting. And that's um, EMG and the nerve conduction study, or is that nerve conduction study something different? We do it together. So the nerve conduction study, we stimulate the nerve and record the response. The EMG is the part where you put a needle in the muscle and listen to the muscle sounds. Is that um, painful? Uh, It's kind of... I mean, anything with needles kind of sounds... Yeah, it's like acupuncture if someone does have acupuncture, so... Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I've also uh, got notes here that electromyography is something that you offer. What is that? This is an EMG. This is the fancy name of EMG, electromyography. Gotcha. (laughs) All right. Um, Now, what about... Do you get into carpal tunnel syndrome and... Uh, ulnar nerve problems, yes. things in the hands and arms. <laughs> yes, so it's a very common complaint. Patient presented with numbness and tingling in the hands, and one of the common uh, etiology for that is carpal tunnel syndrome or ulnar neuropathy at the elbow, which is pretty much entrapment of the nerve in the hand or the elbow. And the gold standard is to diagnose them with the uh, nerve conduction study and EMG. However, in our new muscle center, we have a new state-of-art ultrasound, which can help to diagnose carpal tunnel and confirm the diagnosis in addition to the nerve conduction study and EMG. Interesting. Uh, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with a specialist in neuromuscular disorders, Dr. Ahmed Eldokla. Um, I wanted to ask you about muscle and skin biopsies that are done. You're involved in that as well, right? Yeah, we do We do muscle and skin biopsy in the Neuromuscle Center in Flyrod. And we keep those invasive testing for patients who are really hard to diagnose or who are really complicated. So maybe they've gone through and you've tried these other diagnostic tests and you haven't gotten what you needed? Absolutely. So we start with a blood test. Second step in any muscle or nerve disease is the nerve conduction study and EMG. And if we still was not able to figure the disease or we want to guide the treatment with more aggressive therapy, including immune therapy, we usually take a piece of the muscle or a piece of the skin and send it to the lab. In our uh, newer muscle center, we do non-invasive or minimally invasive, I will say minimally invasive skin biopsy. We usually take make a small incision, put a needle in the muscle, take a small piece of the muscle and send it to the lab. The incision is, is so small, so we don't use the stitches to close them. This is uh, in contrast to the ordinary way to get a muscle biopsy where you have a large incision and you put the patient under anesthesia. So this can be done the same day, I'm kind of an in and out? It usually takes about 20 to 30 minutes. The patient uh, stay in the office for another 20 minutes and then go home. All right. Um, tilt table testing, what is that? 
that's a new modality, very, very uh, helpful in diagnosing uh, many of the autonomic uh, dysfunction. It is one of the tests that we offer in our comprehensive autonomic lab. Uh, Tell table has a parent sensitivity and specificity in diagnosing patients with syncope and presyncope. Syncope, what is that? Syncope and presyncope is uh, a name of uh, symptoms on what happened with those patients. They present with dizziness and they can lose their consciousness for a few seconds to a minute. This is what we call it syncope. Or they just presented with dizziness. They feel foggy and they are about to faint. Maybe sit down or lie down and this is what we call presyncope. Okay. All right. So the tilt table can help in differentiating different causes of syncope and presyncope, including but not limited to patients with orthostatic hypotension, patients with vasovagal syncope, and patients with Bartz disease or postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. So I'm going to ask you to explain those. Orthostatic uh, hypotension. 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 That's when your blood pressure changes right. if you're laying down or standing up? Right. Okay. So hypo means low, hypo okay. means high. So hypotension is a high blood pressure, hypotension is a low blood pressure. Orthostatic hypotension is a very common disease. It affects patients in all ages, uh, especially more prevalent in elderly populations. Patients with orthostatic hypotension usually presented with Lightheaded, dizziness, up on standing, and if they are not, if they didn't sit down or lie down, they might faint. Okay, all right. Uh, on the other hand, we have a very common disease, in, especially in young female, called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Uh, those patients present with a lot of symptoms, including but not limited to heart racing, feeling shaky and tired, and usually they have a migraine and they can have multiple syncope and pre-syncope episodes. Where they pass out. Where they pass something. out, yes. So does that end up being a cardiac problem or a nervous system problem? Uh, as we discussed earlier, the, the, the nerves of the autonomic nervous system or the nervous or the autonomic nervous system controls the function of the heart. So the heart itself as a muscle is normal, but the nerve controlling it has a problem. It's not only that, it also can happen if the nerve controlling the blood vessels is not healthy. And those nerves are part of the autonomic nervous system. So the patients that you end up seeing um, are, I'm assuming they're referred to you um, and you do the testing um, You've mentioned people with diabetes. You might be seeing people with diabetes, um, people with sweating disorders, people with neuropathy. Are there other types of patients that, that come to you? Yeah. So, so, so there's, there's, there's multiple ways where we can uh, interact with the patient. Uh, patient with scarbal tunnel or patient with ulnar neuropathy at the elbow usually referred to us by our colleague in the orthopedic department for testing to confirm the diagnosis. Uh, other patients sometimes refer to us from cardiology to do the autonomic testing, especially after the heart muscle turned out to be normal. Uh, a vast majority of the patients referred to us from our colleague in family medicine just with the symptoms to be seen in the clinic and decide what investigation need to be done. So this autonomic testing, this is a service that the Central New York area really, really hasn't had available until yeah. you came, right? Yes. So this is, this is the autonomic lab and the autonomic nervous system is uh, one of the few autonomic labs in the state and the only autonomic lab in Central New York and Syracuse area. Well, we get patients from uh, different parts of the state, including Rochester and Albany, for either diagnosis or for treatment. Well, it's really good to know that that's available here. Yep. So, yeah. Well, I appreciate your time coming in and explaining all of this. My guest has been Associate Professor of Neurology, Dr. Ahmed Eldokla. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.
Coming up next, how a zero suicide program intends to help those who are suffering on Upstate's Health Link on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Upstate has a leading role in a demonstration project in Onondaga County that is designed to reduce suicide deaths. The program is part of a five-year grant from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's Zero Suicide Grant. To talk about this project, Dr. Christopher Lucas is in the studio today. He's an Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Thank you for being here. Thank you. So tell us how Upstate got involved in this project. Well, Onondaga County has been selected as one of the sites um, to implement this. Um, And then as part of that, all of the agencies that provide mental health services uh, to adults uh, were invited. And then uh, due to my particular expertise in suicide prevention, I got involved. Okay. Wow. So they call it zero suicide. What is what does that mean? Well, it's it's really a mindset that suicide uh, as one of the major public health issues facing the nation and the world um, needs to be addressed to really try and drive down the suicide rate. Um, zero suicides itself is probably an unrealistic target, uh, but it's a goal. Um, I think a more reasonable target probably is a reduction in, in about 20% in the suicide rate. Okay. And to reduce um, attempted suicides as well, I guess, right? Uh, Certainly. I think that uh, attempted suicide is is the major risk factor for completed suicide. Um, So all of the efforts to reduce suicide will also reduce the attempt rate. All right. So what's included in suicide prevention best practice trainings? Because that's what part of this is. Yeah, so part, uh, you know, the initial part of the zero suicide is to bring people together and to have it as a as a focus. Um, The next part is training, Um, and really, uh, the training is probably in in three components. Uh, The first is identification. Um, When you go to the doctors, you have your blood pressure checked routinely. You you aren't asked about suicide. Um, And I think the mindset is that asking about suicide starts to become routine. Uh, that it's done as part of general health screening. Um, Following this sort of screening, then there is training on uh, more accurate identification um, and in terms of determining somebody's suicide risk. So do you want uh, suicide questioning to be part of a regular checkup? Absolutely. Um, It can be as simple as two questions. Um, Have you thought about suicide? Have you attempted suicide? Um, and so people may answer correctly. They do. Um, you know, there's a lot of thought that if you ask somebody, you're going to put the idea into their head, but there's actually no evidence that that's true. Um, when people are asked, they respond. Well, and it could be sort of a surprising question that might, you know, you suddenly realize, well, there's somebody who cares enough to ask. Right. You, you know, know, suicide and mental health generally has such a large amount of stigma, both societal stigma and personal stigma, um, that People may be suffering and having these symptoms, but just don't report them unless somebody asks about them. All right. Okay, so that's uh, identification, right? Right. Um, what, what would be the next? Um, the next is would be treatment. Um, so there are two. Uh, there's one novel treatment that's being brought over from Switzerland where it showed a dramatic uh, reduction in the future uh, suicide rate and suicide reattempt rate, um, which involves a, a two to three session a brief treatment uh, where someone makes a videotape relating their story about their suicide attempt. Uh, Then in a second session, that's sort of debriefed. And then thirdly, uh, and probably most crucially, um, a safety plan is established so that someone, um, when having suicidal thoughts again, has a concrete plan of what to do and how to cope. So this is done in concert with a psychologist or psychiatrist, a mental health professional? It is, um, though within the uh, Zero Suicide Project, uh, there's a, a specified uh, program being set up on Madison Street um, called Attempted Suicide Short Intervention Program, um, and people can be referred there following a suicide attempt um, and then get this brief intervention and then carry on with their regular care. Okay, all right. So... 
is that treatment considered adequate? Is that enough? You know, that's one component of treatment. Um, I think the other um, component of the zero suicide model is really engaging. Um, so getting someone connected within treatment with, and crucially that people don't get lost at various fractures in care. So the transition from inpatient care to outpatient care or from one level of uh, care to another. Um, so it's really about being mindful of someone's suicide risk and connecting them. Um, there are some additional evidence-based treatments that are being promoted, uh, dialectic behaviour therapy or cognitive behaviour therapy for suicide attempters. Um, so there will be training in those modalities and also uh, greater availability of them. So is this training, uh, the best practice training, is that meant for health professionals or other people in the community or both? Um, I think it's probably for all. Um, this particular project is primarily for health professionals, um, but the whole concept of asking about suicide and screening for suicide is one that extends beyond um, health professionals. So um, first responders, um, teachers, um, community professionals, and, and also families in that people could ask um, a family member when they feel that they might be suffering. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Christopher Lucas. He's an associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences, um, and we're talking about the Zero Suicide Grant and Upstate's role in that. Um, I, I want to ask you about suicide rates because there have been some high-profile suicides in the news lately, celebrities, um, and, and I think I remember that the overall rate of suicides has been rising. Is that correct? It has. You know, over the last 15 years, it's risen, risen by about 30%. Um, worldwide, someone dies by suicide every 90 seconds. Um, certain demographics, the suicide rate has increased uh, quite a lot. So middle-aged um, individuals, their suicide rate has increased a lot. What is that attributed to? I mean, there's got to be a lot of research. There's on... a lot of factors. Um, you know, the, some of the, th the thoughts are uh, less cohesion within a society. So at times when people lose their jobs or uh, relationships um, are less together, and when people don't feel connected to a society, um, the suicide rate tends to increase. Um, there's a lot of untreated mental illness. The majority of suicides, um, celebrities included, um, are the result of untreated or of poorly treated mental illness. Wow. You mentioned less cohesion in society, and it seems almost ironic because here we are at a time when social media has exploded during that same time frame. But You know, I think that's probably the opposite of, of social cohesion. Um, so uh, people can see other people having good lives and, and having great meals and great parties and but they are feeling miserable themselves. So, you know, exposure to social media actually is associated with an increased rate of depression and probably, probably suicide. can make it worse. Yes. You know, I think when families are less together, when there's greater mobility, when there's more disruption in families, um, it tends to increase. You mentioned depression. Are the depression rates um, rising as well? Modestly. Um, that uh, They are generally increasing, and they're increasing at earlier and earlier ages. Um, so the suicide rates in preteens are increasing, even though they're very small. Um, it's really quite worrying. Yeah, in younger in younger people. Hmm, interesting. Well, let me ask you what advice you give uh, to friends or family members if if they have someone in their lives who they're concerned about. Um, maybe some you mentioned job loss. Maybe someone who's lost their job. At what point should should someone become concerned? You know, generally. Concern is usually when someone's functioning changes, so they become more socially withdrawn, less interested in things, less able to care for themselves. Um, a useful mnemonic to think about is called ACT, A-C-T. Um, so when someone um, is struggling, you first acknowledge that, that they're struggling. Um, so that's the A. And the C will be that okay. you care. Um, and then T is tell. You tell somebody, a professional, you try and get some help. Um, so... The first is showing that you care and that you're actually going to get someone to help them further. Right, because you may not be the right person. No, you're the right person to give them support. You're not the right person necessarily to treat or to right. assess. Okay. So um, if you do notice that someone's functioning has changed, um, 
who are who are good people to tell in the community? Um, you know, a primary care doctor is probably your first port of call. Their um, pers- th- that person's primary care doctor. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you know, encourage them to see see their primary care doctor to express your concerns about them. Um, you know, obviously, there's a variety of mental health professionals, licensed social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, who can do a more detailed assessment. Um, there's those emergency rooms that, uh, when you, if you feel someone's in crisis, that they can get an assessment there. Um, there are suicide helplines that people can contact, um, either for concern about themselves or concern about a loved one. Let me ask you, is it normal for people throughout life to hit low points where the idea of suicide does enter their mind, but, but they're really not equipped or, or set up to act on it, but, the, but it flashes through their mind as an option? You know, it's probably not normal, but it's fairly common. Fairly common, okay. <laughs> so right. um, I think the, the, the crucial attribute that makes uh, one type of suicidal thinking different from another is the uh, concept of intent. So you have some thought about suicide, but you have no intent ever to act on it is a much less severe than you have thoughts of suicide um, and you have some intent, even if it's vague and not well planned. So thought versus intent. That's yeah, a good exactly. Point. What about uh, a person who has um, maybe attempted suicide? Um, can they, can you recover from that? Can you get far enough away from that that you're not going to think of that again? Um, people who die by suicide um, about 50% of them, they, this, that was their first attempt. So oh. attempting is definitely serious. Um, but most people who attempt don't reattempt. Um, reattempting definitely increases your rate. Um, I think it really depends as to how you process and how you're helped um, by the suicide attempt as to whether you're able then to get adequate treatment or uh, to change your environment in some ways. Adequate treatment, that might be the key then. For sure. For sure. So what about the use of antidepressants? There's a lot of different medications um, on the market. Are those effective in helping reduce suicide attempts? Um, You know, suicide attempts um, are generally associated with depression. Um, And depression is treated in a number of ways, um, by psychotherapy um, and also in certain cases by antidepressants. There's a lot of misconceptions about antidepressants, that they are addictive, um, but they are not. Um, that then once you're taking them, you're on them for life. That's usually not the case. You're, you're on them for a certain period of time. Uh, there was concern um, a few years ago about taking antidepressants actually increasing suicidal thinking. Um, and although there was some data to support that, overall, most of the data from numerous studies in many countries show that Increased rates of prescribing is associated with reduced rates of suicide, Um, particularly people who've been previously hospitalised. Whether or not they receive an antidepressant after they're discharged has a big factor in whether they um, attempt suicide again. So it might be the type of thing that's used um, temporarily. uh, You know, generally you would use it for a period of time, so maybe six to twelve months, um, if that's your first episode of depression. If if it's a recurrent episode, you might take it for somewhat longer. Um, antidepressants um, don't really correct an, a chemical imbalance, as is often popularly believed. Um, they essentially strengthen the brain in order to maintain positive mood more intrinsically. Um, and those changes, that brain strengthening, takes a while to develop. So that's why you take it for that period of time. So if you're taking antidepressants or you're prescribed them, um, would you also perhaps have a therapist as well? Ideally. Uh, Ideally. The combination of both is far better than either alone. Um, Oh, good to know. Yeah. Well, thank you for this information. I appreciate you being here. It's uh, encouraging that we have this um, program in place. Um, So we'll check back in with you to see how things are going. Great. My guest has been Dr. Christopher Lucas. He's an associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
Judith Montgomery is widely published, her recent poems appearing in Prairie Schooner and Bellingham Review. She also has two chapbooks, Passion and Pulse and Constellation. Her poem, Moving My Father, takes the simple act of refreshing flowers in a vase and weaves it into a meditation on aging and loss. Moving My Father. Stippled, scarlet-lipped, the Alstromeria have worn out their water. The vase clouds yellow as newborns who slide into jaundice after birth, or the aged who loose their grip on life, illness writ on skin. At his tiny kitchen sink, I lift the bunch one-handed. Blackened stems drip as I clip the necessary inch from each slick stalk, dump the clotted water out. It pools above the vortex of the drain. I run the tap, fill the glass with water purified by rain and stone. I edge the saved bouquet in below the rim, wipe the glass, set vase and stained flowers back on his table, washed by pale November light. Scarlet petals still drop soundless, giving in to gravity. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, depression in people who have survived a stroke. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.